extent. Um, and I'm very thankful to the elders for calling and, and asking, uh, giving me this opportunity really to uh, present Martin Luther uh, in the theme of October, which is Reformation Month, uh, as one of many men whom God used throughout history to really bring Reformation, not just in the way we uh, see the church, but in the way we view God from His Word. And so it is, uh, it is this vein that we come to the message this morning, viewing Martin Luther if you have your Bibles, turn really quickly to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be looking at this text, as this text was very pivotal in the life of Martin Luther. Um, we'll make some comments on it, and then we'll get into Martin Luther's life. Uh, I have arranged this message this morning so that you can really behold the providence of God as God worked in Martin Luther's life. Um, it is my hope that we, like Pastor Cameron said last Sunday, not magnify or exalt the man but exalt God who works in all times for his own glory and for the eternal good of his people. And so that's the hope this morning. If you would turn to Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verses 16 and 17. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will begin. Amen? Amen. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning you have called us to this place. You have caused us to behold a lifted and risen Christ, through whom, as we have just sung, is our righteousness. Two you and through him we come to you and through him alone we thank you that you have uh, given us your word that you have uh, opened and illuminated our hearts by your spirit that we may behold wonderful things from your law we thank you that uh, you are a forgiving god who calls us unto yourself as we go through our lives throughout the week we have uh, without doubt, we have not loved you as we ought. We have not sought you through your word as we ought. We have allowed the entanglements of the world to distract us even now from worshiping you as we ought. And for these, Father, we ask forgiveness. We ask that your spirit would uh, come among us, revive us, and restore unto us the joy of the salvation that you have given us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for faithful men who preach the gospel Lord's Day after Lord's Day, who, who faithfully proclaim to the people that you have called and gathered into churches the goodness of Christ, the goodness of the gospel, the certainty of salvation. We thank you for that. We ask that you would be with us this morning as, as we look at your word and as we unfold history, seeing how you have preserved not only your word but truth and sound doctrine for us to even know today. We thank you for these things, Father, and we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, when Paul penned those two verses in Romans chapter 1, he was hearkening back to the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where there the prophet, in proclaiming his angst against the pagan culture around him, was met by the Lord. And the vision, the word of the Lord that came to Habakkuk was, 
Never mind the man who can't do anything, but rather think on this. The righteous man shall live by faith alone. Works aside, you can do nothing to earn righteousness. You can do one thing, and that is trust in the promise of God as God has given it to his people. And Habakkuk, no doubt, would have known that in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do to earn righteousness? Nothing. He believed God and it was credited to him. And so Paul, when he pens Romans chapter 1, really the entirety of the book of Romans is packed into those two verses. The rest of the book of Romans is Paul's unpacking of the truths that in the gospel we find the power of God unto salvation, not the power of men, the power of God. And that that power of the gospel which comes to you from God is for those who believe. This is not a universal power for all of mankind. It is strictly limited in those that believe. You will find the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul says, for the righteousness of God. And, and brethren, here's where we're going to find the hiccup in Martin Luther's life. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous one shall live by faith. There is your righteousness. If you are here today and you are a believer, you are not a believer in the things that you have done. You have no faith in your activity of religious practice. What you have faith in is the God who has promised to do all these things and more. And there, when you come to the cross, placing your, as the song said, your burden upon him, when you come to the cross and you declare your unworthiness, you will find that the just Jesus died for the unjust you. That the righteous Jesus died for the unrighteous you. And more so, the Holy One gave himself for those who are ungodly, like you and I. This is the message that Martin Luther struggled with. Now, as we look to Martin Luther, I, I do want to present him in the light this way. There was probably no more polarizing figure in all of the change of the church that we find in the 15th and 16th century than Martin Luther. And I, I often say God, God doesn't choose the wisest, most eloquent speakers in history to make the greatest changes. God chooses the unlikely. And I, I want to stress that Martin Luther was, was an unlikely spark in a long stream of explosions that caused a reformation within Christianity. And so Martin Luther, was, he was regarded in two ways. Early on, he was called a, uh, he was seen as absolutely nothing. He was a greater heretic than anyone who had ever lived. But that same man who made that declaration at the end of Martin Luther's life said he alone was right. And early on in Martin Luther's ministry, he was, he was hailed as being the second most attractive thing to see when you toured Germany or went to Rome, second only to the Pope. And then later that man said, there was no one on earth more deserving of a papal bull for death. How can one man spark such contrasting actions? Well, I will say this, even today, you'll find some who say Martin Luther, 506 years ago, taught the core of the Christian faith 
accurately and faithfully. And you will find some today who say 500 years and Martin Luther is still leading people astray. He is still a polarizing figure, not because of who he was, but because of the truth he proclaimed in the darkness. Well, what about Martin Luther's life? We'll look a little bit at how he grew up. I'll, I'll make some comments on some specific times in his life, and hopefully what I want you to do is I want you to focus on how God is working in the life of Martin Luther. And I want you to ask yourself this question. As we go through this, am I, am I trusting in my righteousness like Luther? Am I frustrated in my Christian walk because I'm not praying enough? I'm not doing enough good? I'm not, am I depending on these things to be accepted by God? Or am I looking fully on Jesus who alone can save? Am I trusting solely upon him? That's what I want you to hear, the life of Martin Luther in the background of that context. And so we'll get started here now. And I will mention just quickly about Martin Luther's um, his youth. When he grew up, he was, there was nothing in his youth that set him on a trajectory to be a monk or a priest or a professor. Uh, he was, in fact, born uh, November 10th. 1483 to Hans and Margaret Luther. Luther was the original pronunciation and spelling of Luther's name. He would change it later in 1517 to Luther, which uh, took away kind of the German meaning, which I think it meant small animal or fox, to something a little more studious and scholarly. Um, but Martin Luther's family, his mother and father, were dedicated Roman Catholics. They very much followed the teachings of the Pope. Uh, and, and Hans had a very quick idea about, about Martin. He, he wanted him to grow up to be an attorney. And he wanted not only Martin Luther to be successful for Martin Luther, but he wanted Martin Luther to be able to care for him and his wife, for Hans and Margaret, and his siblings as he got older. Well, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you can think already, wow, that didn't turn out that way. <laughs> Luther, when uh, recalling his childhood, once said that it was one of great discipline. His parents were great disciplinarians. And it's not very uncommon for that time as you were growing up in the 15th century, later 15th century, you're really in the dark ages, transferring uh, into the you know, early 1500s, you're getting into the more modern period of the age. But discipline was that which shaped a person into success according to the world. And so Martin Luther's life was not very much unlike anyone else's in that regard. Uh, there's no evidence that uh, anything uh, was in the way of rebellion with Martin Luther's parents. As I said, they were very devout Roman Catholics. Uh, in fact, uh, Margaret had very much succumbed to the traditions and superstitions of the day. And uh, in losing one of her youngest uh, children, one of Martin Luther's sons, she claimed that it was because their neighbor was a witch. And so she was very much stooped in the, in the superstition of the day. Um, and then we have uh, Hans, who himself, we'll hear more about these indulgences in, in a little bit, but Martin Luther's father had once sought a special indulgence for the local parish. Uh, so they were very much in, in the tune of the orthodoxy of the Roman Catholic Church for that day. Now, there are two things that set Martin Luther apart. He, one, he was a very intelligent young man. He was also very strong-willed and stubborn. And so those two things set him apart in the trajectory, I believe, in the way God used him as he, as he grew. His father uh, wasn't just satisfied with Martin having a very common education. In fact, um, as at the time a servant, he was um, a domestic servant when Martin was born, uh, he had put away enough money to move his family one year later to Mansfield, 
where there he began to work in the copper mines and probably with some help of some relatives uh, ended up purchasing his first copper mine and smelter. And so Martin Luther's father uh, began, began to have a vertical climb in his uh, public life as well as far as his education went. And so he was able to put away some money and get Martin Luther off to the university at Erfurt where he would practice law. And then the second thing that sets Martin Luther apart uh, is that, like I said, he was very intelligent, but in that, in that law pursuit, he was able to earn his bachelorate and his master's degree as fast as anyone could, uh, leaving the home just under the age of 14 to go to college. Unfortunately, though, for Hans, the plans of a fledgling law student began to uh, really fall apart when Martin Luther really began to wrestle with the status of his soul. As he was in college, his law degree was seemingly coming easy, but what wasn't coming easy was that Martin Luther had no assurance of how he stood before God. And so he began to investigate in his career uh, where exactly he was going to go. Is this going to be the trajectory of my life? And when he was uh, in 1505, when Luther was not yet 22, he took an officially sanctioned break uh, and came to visit his family to discuss that future life that was before him. And when he was on his return to Erfurt, uh, Luther found himself in a very violent storm. I don't know if you've read much of the history of some of the reformers and some of the men in our past who have stood on the faith that God has given them, but there always seems to be a storm involved somewhere. A snowstorm, a lightning storm, some storm that seems to get their attention. And it was no different with Martin Luther. Uh, for as he was walking, um, a bolt of lightning struck the ground very near to him, and this caused him to fall on his knees and cry out, not to God, not to the Lord Jesus, but Martin Luther cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors. His father was a minor, so now he called out to St. Anne, and he made a deal with St. Anne. He said, uh, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And uh, just a few, short month, a few short months later, Luther would exactly do that. He would follow that vow um, and seek to enter the monastic life. Well, he gave away all of his possessions as was required uh, to enter into the monastery. Um, he was a proficient lute player, so he played an instrument. He was very good at it. He gave his lute away. Um, and all of his books, including a very expensive law book that his father had purchased for him called the Corpus Jurish Civilis, which is the body of civil law of his time. So giving all those things away, giving his clothes, his eating utensils, uh, Martin Luther in 1505 entered Black Cloister, which is a monastery for the observant Augustinian monks. Now the observant Augustinian, as uh, opposed to not the non-observant, but the less reformed, was very disciplinary and it, it, had, it took the monastic rules very seriously. And so you, you might say that was a more reformed monastery. And so Martin Luther enters there in 1505, undergoes a year of interrogation by those proper uh, monastic authorities, and then another final year, so two years of scrutiny before actually becoming a monk. By all evidence, Martin Luther was very successful at monkery. Martin Luther had been a student uh, of, the, of his instructors. He 
didn't just simply engage in prayer or fasting, but Martin Luther went above and beyond because he really felt like his sins needed to be atoned for. And so he went above what was required by his teachers. In fact, he would go days without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold on cement, on cement floors and would give himself no comforts of a bed. Um, he would even make sure that his, you know, all of his clothes were scarcely worn when it was time to sleep. He wouldn't warm himself at all. And this, he felt, was because he was a great sinner, and this would somehow find favor with God. Later, Martin Luther commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. He became a priest within a, within a, a few years um, of entering Black Cloister, and on, uh, in 1510, he was sent to Rome to help dis, uh, settle a dispute Amongst the um, monk orders, there was the, a dispute between the more reformed and, or more strict and less strict um, Augustinian uh, monasteries. And so as he traveled the 700 miles on foot with a uh, companion into Rome over the, over the Swiss Alps uh, in the dead of winter and saw Rome as he approached, he was baffled by its ornate beauty. In fact, uh, it was only being there a short while that he began to realize that this is an, an extravagant display of beauty. In fact, it's, it's too much for a monk who has given up all of his possessions, has heard about the indulgence practices of the church, and, and knows that Pope Leo is going to be funding many building projects, even the reconstruction or rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. This didn't set well with Martin Luther. And so it became a point of contention later on, which we'll hear about. At this point, Martin Luther began to be somewhat worthy of a study in his own right. Uh, those fears of his own soul as he entered into Black Cloister soon left him. And now he began to focus more on how he could get God to love him. That became his focus. So he was less troubled about his soul and more intent on seeking what he could do uh, to get the righteousness of God to accept him. In fact, he once said, uh, when it touched by this passing inundation, so speaking of God's wrath and wanting to please God, he said that the eternal soul feels and drinks nothing but punishment. That's how he viewed God. There was just wrath and somehow works needed to appease the wrath. Now, it's here where we have to stop, and we have to open up our Bibles and our minds, and we have to unpack the message of the New Testament, the clear message, and ask the question, where is Jesus in Martin Luther's attempts to satisfy God? Where is the gospel? And, and remember, Martin Luther is instructed by the greatest teachers of his time, and yet his practice and doctrine seem to put him at odds with what we find in Scripture. So the command to study academic theology meant he could investigate his own struggles intellectually. He later commented, commented that he went wherever his temptations took him. And what that meant was he would investigate those things that were most troubling to him, and he really felt free to do so as he was given opportunities and access uh, in instructing others. But it was slow going. He said he did not 
learn all of his theology at once, but like Augustine, through much study, teaching, and writing. So Martin Luther entered school, if you will, and learned by instructing others. It's when we dive into the Word of God, it's when the Holy Spirit takes His way with us through the Word that we begin to learn. And any preacher or pastor who preaches will tell you that the first student, the first hearer of the message is the one who's preaching. That's where God applies the truth first. The heart is sometimes rent with sin and, and a revelation that God is merciful and good and kind and that the message that we think we're unfolding for God's people is often first the sharpest in our own hearts. And that's where Martin Luther came. In that process, Luther's attacks of doubt about his salvation became something of objective realities, almost in the manner that uh, a mathematician would, would anguish over studying a difficult math problem. Well, as a beginning theolo theology student, Luther was taught the prevailing orthodoxy of his time. His teachers, following the Bible, taught that God demanded absolute righteousness. They weren't wrong, but how they got there was wrong. They would read passages like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that instruction would come about that you need to be perfect before you have acceptable faith. Well, Martin Luther would say, amen, and he would again put his head down, and he would seek to uh, earn God's favor again through his own practice. Luther later remarked, I was so drunk and submerged in the doctrines of the Pope that I could have happily took hand against anybody who sought to disobey the Pope himself. Luther, however, was plagued by one problem, and it eventually drove him away from everything that he had been taught. Human beings are by nature incapable of pleasing God. In fact, the idea of repentance in Martin Luther's time, and really in all of the late Middle Ages, uh, was one that was part of the, sacrament, the sacramental confession and penance of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, repentance meant that the sinner would confess and be forgiven by a priest and then perform penitential acts that complete the process. And where you weren't able to complete the process by your own righteousness, well, then the church would step in and they would reach up into the heavens and in the bank store of Christ's good works and merits by monetary exchange would remove the merits of Jesus and apply it to you, the sinner. The critical issue remained vivid in Luther's mind. He commented later, if one were to confess his sins in a timely manner and be so contrite, he would have to carry a confessor in his pocket. Now, a confessor is the man that you would confess to. And this, Martin Luther was warned by his instructors, this type of constant uh, doubting and seeking was going to cause Martin Luther some very big issues. And they knew it, and it did. During his early years when uh, Luther came to the famous Reformation text, which we have read this morning, 
when he would come to Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, oddly enough, Luther's eyes were not drawn to the word faith, but rather they focused on the word righteous. Who, after all, could live by faith? Martin Luther would ask. Only those who were already righteous, he reasoned. But the text is clear. The righteous live by faith. Luther remarked later, I believe that this, uh, there's an allusion to this in, your, in the bulletin. But he said, I hated that word, the righteousness of God. He says, by which I had been taught according to the custom and the use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And to that I struggle. There was no mediator. There was no atonement. There was nothing that bridged the gap between a, a thrice holy God and unholy man in Martin Luther's theology. Young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous. During his turmoil, Luther often approached uh, Johann von Staupitz, who was his uh, superior and vicar over the uh, monastery, uh, the, uh, over the monastic uh, groups in, in Germany. He would approach him about his doubts and his sins and his outright hatred at the words righteousness of God. And Johann had gotten tired of hearing Martin Luther come to him. And he said one time very clearly, he said, Go and don't come back until you commit a real sin. <laughs> he said, you want to be without sin, but you don't have any real sins, Martin. The murder of one's parents, public vices, blasphemy, adultery, those are sins. You must not inflate your tiny sins and pester with this over and over. Well, this did not comfort Luther. Why? Because Luther knew his heart. There was truth in what Luther knew about himself. It is what Calvin would later say, that the heart is a factory of idol-making. And so Luther was not comforted. He would say, my conscience would never give me assurance, but I always, always was doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough here in your repentance. Oh, you left that out of confession. In fact, one time after confessing for two and a half hours with Johann, as he was leaving the confessionary, he remembered a sin and he turned around to run back to Johann and Johann put his hand up and said, you have not yet gained distance enough to sin. <laughs> the critical moment in Luther's life resulted from a decision by his superiors. Now, if you want to talk about how God is the great interrupter of man's devices and plans, it was this wearing down of his superiors in his constant repentance and not finding absolution for his assurance. Martin Luther's superiors decided they were going to send Martin away. And what were they going to do? They were going to send him to take his doctorate and become a professor of the Bible at Wittenberg University. Now, depending on your point of view, this was either the dumbest thing they could have done or quite possibly the most brilliant thing that's ever been done in all of church history. 
Luther resisted this calling by saying, it will be the death of me. How will I be able to meet in confession if I have to meet at the pulpit? If I have to teach, how will I repent? And so after some convincing, Martin Luther finally relented. He soon acquired his mature self-identity as a professor or doctor of the church, uh, behind which he frequently took refuge, even sometimes signing his name D. Martinus Luthers, which was his way of finally coming around to being a doctor of theology. More important, though, the revelation in his theological thinking occurred in his, in his professor's lecture hall and study from uh, 1513 to 1519. We find, again, Martin Luther in teaching the scriptures and actually having his hand on the word and systematically teaching through the Psalms, as he did at this particular point, reaching Psalm 72, um, he found this or made this observation. He said that to his class, he said, this is what is called the judgment of God in Psalm 72. Like the righteousness or strength or wisdom of God, it is that which we are wise, just, and humble, or by which we are judged. Now, in this remarkable statement, the last clause by which we are judged, that last clause is what Luther was taught always seeking to get out from the judgment of God by your own righteous works. But it's the first clause, or the, the, yeah, the first clause in that statement that was most revealing. And that is that somehow God in his truth, in his wisdom, and in his justice works salvation for the unjust. And this is where Martin Luther began to struggle. And I would say began to lose in his struggle against God. So Martin Luther at Wittenberg, on the heels of change, we would find that this was, again, one, one clink in the, in the armor of uh, bad orthodoxy in Luther's time, one chink in the armor. Uh, the church, oh, here's a couple of things he began to change in his own thinking. First of all, the church, as it was seen in his time, was the institution that boasted apostolic succession in the Roman Catholic Church. That is still something that they hold to today. But what Martin Luther found in the scriptures is that the church is the community of people who have been given faith. Martin Luther began to upset some other ways of thinking, particularly concerning uh, the idea that human beings had a spark of goodness in them to seek out God. Martin Luther found that Paul would say over and over, and the psalmist would write that there's none righteous, no, not one, that from the womb we are born in iniquity. And so he began to, began to teach there is no goodness in man. Humility was no longer a virtue that earned grace, but a necessary response to the gift of grace. Martin Luther found out that you cannot earn that which is unearnable. In fact, it is the grace of God that gives you that which you cannot earn. In short... Luther worked a revolution that contradicted everything that he had been taught and everything that the Roman Catholic Church in, their, in his time sought to teach. Something of a chain reaction began to occur. In fact, what happened was more like a long, powerful chain reaction than a sudden explosion. And we all know that the Reformation is often attributed uh, to 1517, October 31st, when 
Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints against the Pope on the church doors at Wittenberg. Um, I would say that's probably not the turning point. There were many points, as uh, Pastor Cameron brought to us last Lord's Day, there were many men used by God. Now, it's here that we want to say, if, if we're to view Luther, Tyndale, Calvin, Zwingli, whoever we're looking at, if we're to view them accurately, we must view them in this lens, that what we attribute as their accomplishments is God's accomplishment. You hold a Bible in your hand or on your lap, in your language, because God wanted you to have his word. The human means by which that came about in history are good for us to know, it's good for us to study, but it is because God desires his people to know him and he reveals himself through his word and that's why you possess a Bible. You're gathered in this place here today, not bowing the knee to a bishop or a pope, but you're bowing to a Christ who is your king because God would have you know him for sure and worship him in spirit and in truth. Not because of a Protestant Reformation, though that's the means by which God used to get all of us to worship according to our conscience. We do these things because God instructs us from his word, but we see the lens of history unfolding because God has providentially worked in men's lives to bring about the change that was necessary. There is a phrase, uh, in darkness light. There was never, I don't think, a darker time, if we could think of the 1400s, the 1500s, even into the early part of the 1600s, where Reformation, where God's word needed to be released, and released it was. Indulgences in the time of Martin Luther became the focus of his 95 theses. Not just that, and ultimately, uh, an indulgence, let me give you an, a, a little brief explanation, and we'll hear a little bit more about it in a minute, but indulgences were documents prepared by the church uh, that brought individuals uh, either alive or dead out of purgatory. Um, as a result, the living purchaser or deceased would be released from purgatory for a certain amount of time, or a plenary indulgence, which would free them altogether. And those those didn't go up for sale very often, but when they did, they, they carried a pretty penny. So we find these indulgences um, purchased by, by proponents for the hope of, of not having a future eternal punishment, or at least having a lesser one. In the time of Martin Luther, at the time he nailed his 95 theses to the door, his complaints, if you will, against the church, um, a man by the name of Tetzel had began at the commission of Pope Leo uh, to go around and to really spark a marketing campaign. The church was running low, the coffers were running dry, and there was a lot that the Pope needed to get done, including that basilica of St. Peter's that needed to be remodeled. And so Tetzel would carefully orchestrate his appearances to excite the public. He crafted sermons to the delight and would persuade, often ending in the now famous quote, once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward, heavenward springs. Luther simply wanted to question the church's trafficking of these indulgences. He wanted to have a dialogue. He wanted to sit down with, 
with the church uh, officers, the authoritarians of that day, and he wanted to really question by reason in a scholarly way, an academic fashion, what the church was doing. But for whatever reason, in 1517, after those 95 theses and, and the many calls uh, for a gathering, a debate, well, that didn't happen. That kind of fell on deaf ears. And for whatever reason, uh, in 1517, he did not get the audience that he sought. Put a bookmark in that because just a couple years later, he will get the audience, but it's not the one he wanted. His 95 theses were translated into the common language and spread across Germany within two weeks. Luther was asked to debate the underlying theological issues at Heidelberg during the Augustinians' regular meeting in the spring of 1518. He went there, and what he underwent was something of a very rigorous in interrogation. Uh, he, would ex he would later describe this as an excruciating interview that caused him to have so much uh, stress that his stomach, from then on, for most of his life, that particular incident was, was the trigger of him having stomach ailments from then on. Luther had good reason to be anxious. Uh, the issue quickly became not just indulgences or even Tetzel's, in, uh, Tetz, Tetzel's practice for the indulgences, but the very question of the authority of the church was raised out of those 95 theses. And so it wasn't just a matter of, of challenging the church's practice, it was now challenging the church's very authority. And the core issue became public at the Leipzig debate uh, in June of 1519, students from Wittenberg came armed with staves, and the local bishop tried to forbid the debate, but uh, Duke George of Saxony, who sponsored it, had sent armed guards to uh, kind of procure the security of this debate that was going to happen. And uh, in the end, it became apparent that Luther was working something of a revolution that struck at the very church itself. And so Luther declared that a simple layman, at the, end of these, at the end of this debate, a simple layman with the scriptures in hand was better prepared than the pope and all the churches without the scriptures. Luther then spelled out the, practice, the practical consequences of his theology. That summer, he wrote that uh, what were arguably his most uh, greatest treatise, uh, number one, the address to the Christian nobility, two, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and three, on the freedom of the Christian. The first one there, he argues that uh, he argues that rulers should take the necessary reform of the church into their own hands. Now, this is this is what the address to the Christian nobility uh, covered. They should take reform of the church in their own hands while arguing that all Christians were priests. So from the scriptures, Luther argued the priesthood of the believer. He argued that, that, that the believer goes directly to God on the merits and personal work of, of another. And the second work, Luther brings from the scriptures a reduction of the seven sacraments that the, the Roman Catholic Church practiced. He brought them down to three from the scriptures, later dropping one, which was penance, and saying that the scriptures teach us that the Lord's Supper and baptism are the two, are the two uh, necessary ordinances given by Christ to the church. And then the third work, which was on the, on the freedom of a Christian, he told Christians from the scriptures that they are free from the law, particularly the law of the church. The scriptures teach you are free from the law because you submit to the law of love. And love 
has no charge in the law. Well, in 1521, Martin Luther got the audience that he had asked for in 1517 at the meeting uh, at Worms, uh, which is called the, the Diet of Worms. German words are funny. In the spring of 1521, he was summoned uh, by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was also Charles I of Spain, uh, who had never been to Germany. So Charles V had never been to Germany, but there was much need for Charles V to have this meeting uh, because he wanted to unite all of the German princes. He wanted to get their attention. He needed their support. Well, inquiring about those German princes at that time, Charles found out, but there's one issue in Germany. It's a certain monk. <laughs> and so Charles made arrangements for that monk to be invited so that unity would be found and support of the German princes would be gained. Luther, of course, headed left Wittenberg uh, to attend the Diet, convinced that he would finally get the debate, scholarly dialogue that he wanted back in 1517. And as he was ushered into the meeting, Luther was awed to see that Emperor Charles V was there. Surrounded by his advisors and representatives of Rome with Spanish troops and decked out in all of their parade. And uh, you had electors and bishops and territorial princes and representatives of great cities all in this meeting to hear a debate about indulgences from the church. And as Luther was sat, he was asked to look at a pile of books that sat on a table before him. He was asked if he had written those books and if there was any part in those books that he wished to recant of. Now, this was shocking to Luther because Luther thought this was going to be a dialogue, something of a debate, but this was no debate. In fact, uh, because this was so obvious a charge, Luther stumbled and asked for one more day so he could prepare his thoughts, and he was granted uh, that one more day. In fact, this is what he said uh, in order to gain that day. He said, he said, sirs, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. I beg you, give me this time. And so they gave him one day. And back to his quarters he went. And there he wrote, so long as Christ is merciful, I will not recant one single jot or tittle. And the next day's business at the, at the meeting, Luther comes in at evening, candlelight flickering off the crowd. And there again, he was asked, will you defend what you have written in these books? Or do you wish to recant some? And Luther replied with a short speech, which he prepared in Latin. Now, there were three kinds of books on those tables. Some were about the Christian faith and good works, and these he certainly would not retract. Some attack the papacy, and to retract these would be to encourage tyranny in Martin Luther's mind. And finally, in some of those books, he attacked individuals, and Martin Luther ad admitted later that perhaps too harshly. But still, these could not be retracted because these people defended papal tyranny. And so he reasoned that there was nothing he could retract. One individual 
calling upon uh, the tradition of the entire church, declared, you must give a simple, clear, and proper answer. Will you recant or not? And this is where he probably added the famous phrase, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. From that moment on, and this is something of a providential mystery, um, from that moment, Martin Luther was given 21 days reprieve. They actually gave him the reprieve prior to his appearing, so they actually stayed true to what they had given him. He had 21 days of grace, but an imperial edict was issued May 1521 that declared Martin Luther a heretic. And at that point, no one was to harbor him. In fact, anyone could have killed Martin Luther without any imperial civil repercussions. They could have taken him out because he was deemed a heretic by the church. And it is here that Martin Luther, after those negotiations, uh, condemned, but safe for 21 days, made his way uh, back to Wittenberg. And on his way, four or five men armed and on horseback plunged out of the forest, snatched Martin Luther from his wagon and drug him off. Well, he wasn't being whisked away for punishment. He was being saved by the prince of his territory in Germany, Frederick the Wise. Frederick knew that Martin was in trouble, and he sought to preserve him. Luther despised this forced stay, by the way, at Wartburg. And, and even at that particular moment, they not only snatched him away, but they gave him a new name. Martin Luther's new alias was Knight George. Martin Luther grew his beard. He uh, dressed in royal array. I mean, he, he literally played the part so that uh, at that, yeah, there's a picture of it right there. Martin Luther's uh, appearance was altered uh, in some degree, and he stayed for 10 months uh, secluded away from the public. And here in these 10 months, it is said that Martin Luther was perhaps the most productive, most of the theological and scholarly works uh, that he did were in this 10-month stay. The translation of the Bible, uh, Erasmus's version of the Bible, um, some of his writings that would ultimately address uh, the conscience, mon monastic vows, those types of things um, were then penned in that stay. As his revolution expanded, Luther was increasingly thrust into the public arena. Um, he at one point openly returned to Wittenberg without Frederick the Wise's knowledge. He stole a horse, rode back so that he could preach and teach for a day or two, and then returned back, and that gained a lot of uh, attention from the public. Um, and the unrest during the peasant wars, even Martin Luther would, would, would show he still wasn't real stable. At one point, he condemned, he condemned the princes that uh, were trying to put a squash to the peasant wars, and then later, um, you know, he was, he was one, at one point, he was condemning the princes and then exhorting them to crush the revolt uh, on the other side. So there, was, there were a lot of things that Martin Luther uh, still struggled with. He was kind of a, um, an engaging yet controversial figure. His arguments with Zingwili over the, over the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper, whether they were the physical manifestations of Christ's body or blood, uh, or they were uh, symbolic. Of course, Martin Luther held that there was transubstantiation, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, become, or the elements become the body and blood. But throughout Martin Luther's life, uh, unto the end, which he died at 63, um, Martin Luther's life uh, was somewhat 
obscure uh, at, at that point. Um, he loved the printing press. He would continually answer people's questions. If they had public questions for him, he would always answer them in treatises. Uh, in fact, if you look at your bulletin, there are some handy um, facts about Martin Luther. One of the facts are that he penned over 60,000 pages of documents and treatises. And, uh, and his final thought on that one year before he passed away was, I wish that all of my books would disappear and only the word of God would remain. And on February 18th in 1546, at 3 a.m., Martin Luther passed away. How do we know that? Well, Justice Jonas was a very close friend of Martin Luther's. And when he, when he had heard that Martin Luther was ill, he made way to Martin Luther's bedside, and he stayed with him the entire time. There, he said, Martin Luther confessed Christ, never recanted of anything, his very last breath was praising his God through Christ Jesus. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few things here. We've got to, I've picked out 13 of the key statements from within the 95 Theses that we'll, we'll read real quick. Uh, and then we'll, we'll look back to the text of Scripture and we'll close in prayer. Here's one. Uh, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says repent, he means that the entire life of the faithful should be one of repentance. Number two, regarding number one, the statement cannot be understood of the sacrament of penance or of confession and satisfaction, which is administered by the priesthood of the church. Uh, here's a couple more. Number 36, every Christian who truly repents has been forgiven fully both of the punishment and guilt bestowed upon him without a single letter of indulgence. Number 45, Christians should be taught that whoever sees a person in need instead of helping him but uses his money for an indulgence obtains not an indulgence from the Pope but, from the, but the wrath of God upon him. Number 81, the shameless preaching of pardons makes it hard even for learned men to defend the Pope's honor against such accusations, shrewd and shrewd questions of laity. So Martin Luther says, look, because the Pope acts this way, you can't even defend the Pope's office. It's so defiled. Number 94, we should admonish Christians to follow Christ, their head, through punishment, death, and hell. Number 95, and so let them set their trust on entering heaven through many tribulations rather than some false security and peace. I don't know about you, but those are biblical truths that we should be able to say amen to. Well, let's look back at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 very quickly. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why did Paul need to say he was not ashamed of the gospel? Look at Martin Luther's angst against the church. When you have the truth of God revealed to you, particularly the work and person of Jesus Christ, the gospel is everything to you. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians, as I know Phil has preached on already, that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. 
That is that those who are self-righteous have no need for a savior. And so how can we put our faith and trust in one who's been taken to death on a cross? That's the Jewish point of view. To the Greek, the philosophers, the Stoics of their time, the gospel is foolishness. But here Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you exist in such a time as this right now. That in your life, in your work, in your family, you are called to be bold proclaimers of the gospel that you say you believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It is not man's power. It is the power of God. And not only is it the power of God to the Jew first and the Greek, but in that message is the righteousness of God revealed. Not God's righteousness as it is that punishes the wicked and the unrighteous, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to you when you believe that he is the Son of God. You see, the gospel is not really defined in Romans 1, 16 and 17, but this is the gospel. God is holy and we are not. We have a problem. In order for us to be accepted by God, in order for us to see eternity goes well in our favor, we have a problem because God demands justice. God demands a complete reckoning of his wrath. And you and I cannot make that payment. 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, truly God and truly man, who lived a perfect, sinless peerless life according to all the laws of his father, even the obedience of life and death on a cross. And in that cross, Christ took upon himself the sins of all those who would believe in him. And in that moment, all of the wrath of God was satisfied and the justice of God peased on behalf of those who put their trust and faith in him. He was buried and rose again the third day. And in raising from the dead, prove that his atonement was acceptable to God. And in raising, we are justified. We look to Christ in the newness of life. In dying, we died with him. In raising, we raise with him. And in being ascended to the right hand of the Father where he mediates now on behalf of those who are his, we know that we go on in this life as sinners that Christ mediates on our behalf when we confess our sins. For God is faithful to forgive those sins. And again, we not only worship a risen Savior and a risen King, we await His return. And we know that Christ will return for His church to give a people to His Father. And there we find comfort into eternity. So dear friends, if you are here this morning and you're trusting in Christ as your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins, do you understand that the reason your salvation runs so much deeper than just a decision that you made is because it is based on the person who is infinitely more worthy than everything in all of creation. Before you and I ever existed, before we had done anything good or bad, the God of perfect holiness set his love upon you. We sang about it this morning. We love him because he first loved us. And his choice of us has nothing to do with us. It's not based on what you might do or what you might believe, but it is based upon the work of his son.
If you are a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, you can rest in the truth of the sovereignty of the Father who has drawn you to Jesus, where we hear Jesus say, all that the Father gives me, I will lose none of. And if you are here this morning and you are apart from Christ and you have heard the struggles of Martin Luther and still to this very moment you are thinking, there must be something I must do. Listen, if you're asking, did Jesus die for me? Has the Father drawn me to Jesus? Am I one that the Father has set his love on in eternity past? I want you to hear the words of Jesus again in John chapter 6 and verse 37. And you can bank all of your faith and trust on this one sentence. And it is this. Anyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. Anyone who comes to me, Jesus said, I will not cast out. All that is required is that you put your faith and trust in Christ as the Son of God. Repent in faith, turning away from all of your sins, turning away first from your unbelief, putting your trust in Jesus and His righteousness and not your righteousness. Spurgeon once said to the sinner, come to the sea of Christ's love and cast your righteousness within its depths. Look to Him and live.